Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast with writer Anna Kena Schofield, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square in Dublin. My name's Laura Slattery and I'm very pleased that the Irish Times Book Club title for November is Anna Kena's astonishing and compelling novel Martin John, a portrait of mental illness that goes inside the mind of a paranoid man who exposes himself in public. Anna Kainan is an award-winning Irish author whose first novel, Malarkey, won the 2012 Amazon.ca First Novel Award and the 2013 debut Litzer Prize for Fiction. Published in this part of the world by And Other Stories, Martin John was shortlisted for Canada's Giller Prize for Literature in 2015, and Anna Kena is also a nominee for this year's Goldsmiths Prize, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. We're delighted to welcome her to Dublin for this event. Please show your appreciation for Anna Kena Schofield. Thank you. Anna Kena or AK? AK, whatever you want. Um, Just not Postman Pat. No, not Postman Pat. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Postwoman, I guess, would be all right. Fair enough. Martin John, the novel, has been described as provocative and risky and also a brave novel to write. When you sat down to write it, did you sense it would be received that way? And are you pleased by that reception? Um, when I sat down to write it, I mostly laid down in despair to, while I wrote it. Uh, no, quite the contrary. I, um, I was deeply anxious about this novel. Um, I actually thought this novel would ruin me, as they say. Uh, um, um, because, you know, it is, it's, I'm demanding a lot of the reader. Um, that's really before you get to the subject matter. Um, formally, uh, after Malarkey, I wanted to, to go much further. I wanted to push for him as far as I could. And so with this novel, I tried to create um, a syntactical form so that the shape of the sentences would speak to the content of the novel, not just the shape of the novel, because that's what interests me about fiction, is how I can push form. So Martin John, I mean, he suffers from mental illness. Um, so but that's reflected in the in the form of the book in its very circular patterns. It sort of really highlights the sort of obsessive thoughts and behaviour that that he exhibits. Yeah, the novel's predicated on the loop. Uh, there, it's there's an index in this novel, which is kind of unusual for a novel, um, and it comprises five refrains, which um, royal around Martin John's head religiously, if you like, um, and that each refrain is a device that he uses to distance himself from the responsibility of what he's about to do. When he's going to curve, cave into his urges, he marks, he marks them with these refrains. So it's, it's sort of some, it's a device that he, he hides behind, but it also uh, worked very well in terms of, I knew that the novel would have to be circular, and it would have to be hermetic in the sense that it would unroll within itself unto itself only. That was uh, a goal that I had with this novel because it's conceptually, it's a footnote novel. It's a, it's a novel in a single footnote. So my first novel, Malarkey, has a single footnote, a star that says, see Martin John, a footnote novel. And when I did that, it was uh, what my mother would call pure divilment. I had no idea it was going to write this so Martin well, John is, right. a, is a character in Malarkey. He, he pops yeah. up in a psychiatric ward. Is that, that's right, isn't it? In Malarkey, he's this very um, eccentric, lively... Oh, he's not lively, actually. What am I saying? He's, he's in a hospital bed in a psychiatric ward. He's not a bit lively. Um, I haven't written that one yet. <laughs> I, haven't written the, <laughs> I haven't written the lively, eccentric but, man yet. Um, but it was as you were writing Malarkey that you kind of thought maybe... Well, Malarkey was originally a parallel narrative. It was about two mothers and two sons. And it took 10 years to write that book, and needless to say, there was, a few, uh, there was a few adjustments in those 10 years. And so eventually I threw one half of the book, one of the narratives out, and that narrative was uh, Martin John's mother and him. But there's a part towards the end of Malarkey where there's this character I call Beirut in, in Malarkey, and he believes he's been to Beirut and he's fixated on Beirut, and he's in the psychiatric ward opposite the main character in Malarkey, our woman. And they form a sort of a relationship. But Beirut is the psychological space between the two beds. Um, and so the first line of Martin John is, Martin John has not been to Beirut. He's only been to London to visit his auntie Noni. So that's where the footnote comes from. Because throughout the first time we met him, he was just babbling nonstop about Beirut. And he babbles a bit about Beirut in this still. 
So he's been exiled to London, essentially, by his mother because of the, um, I suppose, you might call sexual deviancy that he's exhibited at home. Yeah, well, I describe it that the mother sees her son behaving in, a, in an alarming way, but she doesn't have the tools to, to, to deal with that. Um, you know, she won't face the reality of what she's seeing. And then finally, there's, there's a line in the novel where she says it was when he did it to a man then she, or a boy or whatever, she knew she had to get him out. So I thought that was an important demarcation. Like, while he was doing it to girls, she would tolerate it. But then once he did it to a man, it was, or a boy, it was, it was clear, it was a problem. And what I was trying to do with that was invert the way that historically in Ireland, um, you know, this tradition of shipping the fallen unmarried mother, the fallen woman, to England, and she would be sent, and she would be away in England nursing. So I wanted to actually invert that, and I do that quite a lot in my fiction, um, where I invert things. So instead, I had the mother dispatch the son, and in very much the same way in Martin John, the mother dispatches him to London, and then she's, she's kind of like the um, space station or something, because she just issues these edicts to him. You know, through his, and we hear them through his, through his head. Yeah, because um, one of the, the great things about the book is that I'm never quite sure whether Martin John is trying to maybe please his mother or if he regards her as one of his enemies. Do you have a view on yeah, that? Yeah, well, she, well, he's constantly disappointing his mother and he's failing. You know, I, I mean, ever since I finished the novel, you know, I, I keep seeing this interesting, uh, you know, parallels with, with the liturgy. Even though when I wrote this novel, I wasn't obviously thinking about the liturgy because I was stuck in this man's groin for most of the time. Not a very pleasant place to be. Um, uh, but yeah, I was thinking because, you know, the refrain and the Holy Mass, you know, call and repeat, you know, and that's very much similar in here. I do that with prose. I invert things. I'll say the line one way and then I'll reverse it. Um, and then like that, like he's, again, he's like he's on the... Stations of the Cross, or something. He keeps falling because every time he gets these, he gets these urges. He's a flasher. He's a fraiteur. He likes to rub up against women in public spaces. And the starting point, really, for this novel came as a response to the clerical abuse reports, which have been there's just been such a plethora of them. I mean, all over the world. I mean, I live in Canada now, and at the moment, and we had, you know, terrible. Um, reports there and investigations around Indigenous um, First Nations Canadians and sexual abuse by priests. And And the book is set in a period where there's a culture of denial about this. Yeah. Yeah, I just felt I couldn't put another piece of fiction in the world that didn't in some way respond to something about the deep, in the deep psychosexual problems that have really populated, you know, the news and our thinking for the last, what, 10 to 20 years when it emerged. And I mean, that's the, the church. It's not just the church. It's um, an awareness of sexual assault. And it's also um, stuff um, like Jimmy Savile, you know, um, high profile people raping. In plain sight, essentially. In plain sight, heroic charity raising and so there was there's things like that there were a couple of images um that prompted the novel there was a general need to respond to something in that like it felt like this is this is such a massive thing this defines for me this is really the defining thing of my generation I would say I don't know how anybody else in the room feels about that where it's we've become aware of uh, the level of, of abuse the level of sadistic um, violence that's been meted out and and I hope now you know your Martin John's mother she doesn't I, I don't have a, a hard time imagining uh, that she would not know how to deal with that she would not have places to respond she would not have she wouldn't have the language maybe and I don't honestly believe we know that women were not believed so you could have you could have spoken up till the cows come home you know and, and people did and not just women, men. I mean, I'm particularly concerned with women in this book. But yeah, but there, there is a, one of the, the great uh, successes of the book is I think you show the the processes that people, the mental processes people go through in order to deny what's right before yeah. them. Yeah. Well, it's hard, right? Do you like you know, you know? There's other. So so I'm kind of curious. So I was trying to pose like little philosophical questions. So in this, it was like. 
First of all, is it possible to love your child to the point where you could destroy them? That was one of the first things I thought about. And then I thought, well, is it reasonable that a mother might protect her child, or might, might yeah, protect her child to the sacrifice of somebody else's child? And what would you do? What, what, what I mean, I'm a mother. You don't know what you're going to get. You give birth. You, you know, you can't stuff your child back up yet. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's probably, that's coming. You know, you probably download them 10, 10 minutes before and, if, you know, you don't like the look of them. Or I think that might be, be an idea for another... Delete them or something, but that, we're not there yet. It looks like even in that Ireland... That might be an interesting novel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, even in Ireland where women have so so far so little, still so little control over their, their bodies and choices as regards to reproduction. Um, you know, so I don't think that downloadable, deletable is, is anywhere on the horizon but, but my point being, it's not, you know, this is the work of fiction. These are the places, these are the spaces that, that you can play in fiction. You can posit questions and circumstances and situations that science can't. Science cannot say, uh, science can, you know, social science can say, okay, there are 24 victims, and this is how we've ascertained that they're victims. Uh, and they can give us statistics. It can't ask psychological questions. It can't prompt us to think about about ethical dilemmas such as you know I mean there have been cases in Ireland where mothers were aware of that dreadful case down the country with the with the father who was raping his daughter for daughters for years and the mother was was aware and of course there are all kinds of reasons and I don't really want to get into that because it's not my area but but you know I think you know fiction that's what what I love about fiction is to to posit scenarios and then allow the reader to come to those scenarios and, and complete them, you know? I'd love to ask you now to read an extract okay. from uh, Martin John. This is from near the start of the book. Yeah, so. this is a very cheerful extract. <laughs> uh, that, was a very, that was a very grim introduction there from me, huh? <laughs> this is a very funny book, allegedly. Yeah, we're going to talk allegedly. about how funny it is. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've, we've started off on a very melancholic, serious note. Because we're serious women, aren't we? Absolutely. Serious, but not earnest. Not earnest, serious, nasty women. (laughs) So I'm going to read this part uh, about Martin John's... Did I decide? Am I reading the mother or am I reading the part about the newspaper? Oh, no. And the mother. Page 27. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. False alarm. See, I have this... There's a part in the novel where Martin... Martin John is really fixated on people that write in the newspaper. He's got... A number of, in fact, Laura. To be honest, he might. Uh, he might send me a letter. He well, he might. It depends on your name. Hillary Fannin would definitely be on his radar. He'd probably be watching that column, you know. So you know, he he keeps a file on all these, especially the women that are writing in the paper, and sometimes they disappoint him, you know. And I must admit, it's pretty inspiring, the Irish Times Letters page. Some of the best fiction in this country. Some of the <laughs> highest quality prose I've ever read. I'd be rolling around the floor laughing at some of them. So well edited as well. Was a, I don't know if that's in-house. Perhaps. Oh, okay. Yeah, we edit it in-house. Yeah, oh, we okay. have an editor's editor. Sorry. It's a little bit of a revelation <laughs> there. I thought they were just really, really talented in, you know, Nace Road or wherever. Yours, County Limerick, Porrick of County Limerick. Um, okay, so in this part, um, this is the part about Martin John's mother, and she's contemplating her son's behaviour. Ma'am repeatedly asks whether or not he can hear her. Do you hear me, Martin John? Because we can assume she doesn't feel heard. She wouldn't want to hear what it is he would say if he were to speak the truth. She saw a man on telly once. She's seen plenty men on telly, but this one frightened her. She's seen many men on telly who frighten her, but he frightened her in a particular way. He frightened her the way she feels frightened when she sees someone lash out at a dog. In actual fact, she's not a woman easily frighted. The dark, insects, vermin, death, moths in the flower, none bother her. But a glance, a moment in which there's an indication of what might be the truth if a person sits longer at her. A rat would run under the cupboard sooner than look at you. 
A man or a woman who lets a boot fly at a dog or throws an item at a chicken in their way has a sealed and, sorry, has a raw and sealed in something that she's convinced can never be dislodged. That man on the television made her afraid because she recognised something of her son in him. There were many who talked of their crimes in that programme. They talked like they were uncomfortable ingredients in a recipe, something hard to shop for, like chopped walnuts, ground lemon rind or tamarind. They used the names of the crime. I murdered, I raped, I punched, I killed, not him. The details are gone. He talked above and around his crime. He remained oblivious or chose oblivion. He was unsure why he was in here. He did not say he had not done it. He did not say it was a mistake. He merely said nothing either way. They showed this man beside a man with a long ponytail who said he'd opted for chemical castration and then physical castration. He was the only one in that prison programme who'd had availed of it. She thought of a small boy being born, riding a trike, building a fort, and then flash forward all these years. She wondered if that boy, building and deploying, could ever image forward to the man they might grow up to be. Was it that she thought criminals should suffer unto perpetuity? She thought maybe it was. Then she pushed it all aside. It was distressing that a stranger in another time zone filtered through a televisual tube could induce this in her. She returned to it being a mistake, a misunderstanding, messing gone wrong. Boys get up to stuff, which it was. Martin John was young and it was only messing. If people coming down a televisual tube were going to disturb her, it would be a long disturbance. What about it? She did not like the idea she had a role in it. You would not like the idea you had a role in it. Did she have a role in it? Have you had a role in it? Do you have a role in this? These are some of the questions a mother may ask herself. Another interview, Tuesday radio, Tuesday morning radio this time, had her by the ear. An interview with a former drug-addicted mother who wondered if the fact she was an addict was the reason her son grew up to become a drug dealer and robbed a post office in Kilchamark. It was a strange place to rob a post office, said a priest who happened to be in there trying to buy a stamp. They wondered if her son did it because he'd been watching too much American television. The mother admitted her son glamorised his violence and boosted his profile with the words that the feds were after him. The mother admitted she thought the feds was a parcel company. I thought he was being chased by the post office. I see different now. How did he get there? The priest on the panel asked. He took the bus, the radio mother said. The woman interviewing them all said words like, now I realise this is very difficult for you all. Except it wasn't difficult for the priest. He was not at fault. Nor was it difficult for the Minister of Justice who was on the line. The only person it was difficult for was that mother with the veins from which her son had grown and robbed a post office. There was an advert where the radio mother spoke to tempt the audience to keep listening. I botched up motherhood, her voice said. Find out after the break. Did she botch up motherhood? Enunciated the presenter. Martin John's ma'am turned the radio off. As Martin John's ma'am hears the former drug-addicted mother puzzle it out, she recognises there are many mothers out there puzzling things out. She will have to be a mother who puzzles. Except she's not the type who puzzles. She prefers to head bang to a conclusion. In this case... I was not that mother. I am not that mother. I didn't raise my son to rob a post office. So what did she raise him to? She prays hard. She encants for him. Once she prayed to St. Jude, a man who'd fell in his own way, so he'd understand this overwhelming need to keep her son straight. I can't afford no three-time cock crowing with Martin John. One more crowing and it's prison he'll be. Everything I do and have done is to keep him on the outside. Sure, if it's in, he goes. They'll kill him. 
plain and simple. They'd eat him alive. They don't spare the like of him. Someday he'll come home to me. He'll come home when he's failing or an old fella, and I'll be waiting. She's probably lying. She doesn't want him near her ever again. Some days she dreams, imagines, fantasises that he might be killed, shot or run over by the bus. Like them fellas you read about in the papers. Sometimes they, sometimes they kill men like him. Others do it. They hunt and they kill them. Sometimes they wait till they're inside. Sometimes they leave a note on them. Martin John's not as bad as the ones they kill, she reminds, comforts herself. Thank you very much. So we've seen there, there is a a dark comedy lacing through this book. And I know it's a matter of personal taste, but for me, that's almost just essential to this subject matter that I'd find it difficult to read it without it. But I mean, you know, it's it's a strange thing, really. I mean, I don't know if you sit down as a writer and say, well, I'm going to be funny, but it's just a kind of an instinct to try and capture that tone. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't think you're funny, right? Do you? No. I don't know. A fellow once asked me that at an event and he said, when did you realise you were funny? And I said, (laughs) what? And I said, do you think you're funny? And he said, yeah. It's for Um, other people to say. (laughs) Well, I said, well, you're male. So, I mean, you know, maybe that's why you think you're funny. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, Yeah, I no. you just sit down and you, you, well, I mean, you labour. You labour horribly on these things. I mean, it's awful. I mean... I don't know. You know, you just spend forever and ever and ever redrafting these bloody sentences. And and I don't know. I, I just think that humour is so essential. I don't understand. Like, I, the only people I don't understand are people, humourless people. I don't understand how do you get through. Life can be so bloody awful. Like, if you don't have a sense of humour, how could you... How could you possibly survive? And the thing is that the people that I'm interested mostly in writing about... You know, and this is one of the things, one of my philosophical objections to the word story, is that if you think about social class, right, the poor, the ordinary working poor person, they don't have resolutions always. I mean, you don't even have to be that poor now. You still don't have resolutions regardless. I don't know if anybody's got any resolutions anymore except maybe Elon Musk (laughs) going to Mars. That's his resolution. Uh, We can't all go to Mars. Um... Because, you know, Elon hasn't got the I'm not sure even, even Elon can go to Mars. So my, as a side note, I have a prediction to make. I think that Bernard-Henri Levy, that aerated shirt-wearing man who I'm not a big fan of, I think he's going to be the first man on Mars. Because if you think about Is right, he going to set up his own well, colony? You know, Elon Musk is on the way, right? But I think Bernard-Henri is going to get there first. And I think what's going to happen is basically he could go to the ILAC Centre... Put him on an escalator. I don't know. For some reason, they just open the roof up. Maybe they're cleaning something. Turn it up. Can you turn up escalators? Speed it up. Speed it up. Like something goes wrong, mechanically wrong. He's got that open shirt, right? He's got all those curls. Like he's, he's actually aerated that man. Like he would literally go up the escalator, go straight to Mars. Well, this is the book that Douglas Adams sadly didn't live to write. <laughs> um. See, this is one of the great benefits of being a novelist. You know, because you're not scientific. So you don't actually think, oh, no, there's a roof on the ILAC Centre. Oh, I don't know if escalators are capable of that. I've already planned. Like, I can, you can basically get rid of anyone annoying you on, on RTE. You could just, just, with my theory, right? If you were a novelist, you'd sit there and just send them all to Mars. You okay. Know, trip okay. them up. Have yeah. they got libraries on Mars? I Bookshops? Have to, I, have to be honest, I have this vision of the Martians up there, you know, penning a do not, you know, do not fly list. In fact, right now, they're probably right now, Bernard Henri Levy, number one. Actually, not be Elon Musk, because he's already announced it. Can you imagine the poor Martians? Like, oh, God, they're coming. <laughs> the final, final revenge of the do not fly list. The Martians are up there. I'm probably not, I'm, I'm on it now. That's it. Um, sorry, what was the question? Yeah, no, I was asking you about a uh, dark l- sense of uh, comedy oh, yeah. oh. through the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, so- you, you mentioned there, I mean, you, you mentioned there that you, you, know, you, you obviously laboured over it. And that, that's the other thing I wanted to ask is about the kind of the rhythms of the sentences. You know, I really kind of connected with them. I think they were... Well, let's they- go back to the humour. So my thing is, right, that it, you cannot, like if you're poor, you can't survive life unless you have a sense of humour. Like, look at what people have to endure. I mean, you know, think about Yemen right now. Think what's happening to those people. Saudis are 
bombing the arse for the last year, how, you know, you've got nothing, you, everything is so hopeless. Um, and I'm not suggesting, you know, everybody's rolling around laughing in these places, but I just, when I see people who work so hard, like people that do the hardest jobs, you, they always, often will, will have the best sense of humor. In Vancouver, I go to the downtown east side, which is a postal district with a very, very high number of um, marginalized communities and uh, IV drug users. And I go down there, but part of the reason is because if you're walking the street, somebody will throw you a line. Somebody will say something, you can have some repartee. Whereas, to be honest, in other parts of the city, you could, you know, say hello to someone don't answer. I so my, my point is that, that humor is essential. And if you don't have a sense of humor, and if you're not funny, that's okay, but get an injection. Basically. But I like to be, I like to be generous and think that everybody has a sense of humor, but just some people it's just very well hidden. <laughs> well, that's true. Somebody made me really laugh the other day by describing Wimbledon as leafy. I don't know why I said, "What was it like growing up in Wimbledon?" And the person said to me, "Leafy." I thought that was very funny, but nobody else said it. So I thought so. I said, "It's not the adjective I expected. Like unexpected adjectives. It can be so funny, you know." But I spend a lot of time indoors. Like I think that's part of it. Maybe you get a better sense of humour if you're indoors. What's it like in the Irish Times? I mean... It's very funny. Yeah. It's just a barrel <laughs> of laughs, isn't it? Yeah, we spend every day a, in... A laughter hysterics. room. Yeah, a laughter room. Yeah, we do, yeah. But there's a lock on it. We have to ask for the special key. But when we go in, it's, it tends to be... <laughs> okay, now you want to know about the sentences. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, and also, I suppose there's a theatricality to some of it. I mean, a lot of critics have picked up on that um, and some have even suggested that this should be adapted for the stage. How do you feel about that? Well, I haven't been getting any bloody phone calls. <laughs> um, actually, I did try to... I did send an email to a theatre in Cork. Did not get a reply, but that's Okay. I mean, I didn't write, you know, dear theatre in Cork, you know, apparently somebody, somebody, somebody said you should turn this into a play. But anyway, clearly I'm not effective. You know, roll up, roll up if you want to turn this book into a play, you know, just, uh, you know, just don't like add nice things to it. Keep it nasty. Um, well, one of the things, again, to go back to social class, is one of the things that interests me is what about the kind of variable note? So, for example, I mean, this is one of the interesting things in the, say, the post-McGahern era is we've become very heavily um, sedated, if you like, on, on, on realism. And I, I said this before, like, like fiction is not Google street map. So, you know, the rendering of the most perfect description, heapy-heapy description of that door or a tree or... I mean, okay, but, but what about lives where fiction is the place where you can give status that they don't have in life, right? I mean, I'm curious about what this obsession within recent fictional movements is around verification and authenticity. And I seem to come across it quite a bit as a theme in Irish fiction like why what is this notion of well fiction is valuable more valuable if it's really authentic why why not subvert why not take somebody who we may assume on the basis of class prejudice not to have an intellectual life and why not actually create a book that gives them an intellectual life you, you know and we don't know we have no idea that the person washing the floor or whatever is not, you know, thinking about Wittgenstein. We just don't know. So fiction's the place to give status that somebody may not have in life. And when you want to write about... See, I think it comes down a lot to who do you see. Like, when you go and you look in life, who, who do you see? Uh, do you see the bus driver? Do you see that he has narrative possibilities? Do you see... Um, I mean, you know, I must admit, I get a bit carried away... Do you feel there's a certain amount of narcissism, perhaps, in in, in publishing today, that or the, the way uh, certain books are celebrated as kind of reflections of the author? It seems to be uh, those are the books that are fated quite a lot, and you're trying, you're making the case for uh, imagination. I think I mean, making shit up, I think, is is was one. Yeah, of the I think it's important to make shit up. Uh, do I think publishing is narcissistic? Well, I don't. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, I don't really know enough about publishing. You know, I I indoors writing books leading a fairly monastic, sad, vitamin D-deprived existence. Um, I'm certainly not swanning about at publishing parties. I don't seem to have any in my building. <laughs> it's a council building, council flat. Um, You'll have to hold one yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got this video gaming teenager who's, you know, 
fantastic and always tells me, yeah, mommy, nobody wants to read that book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I just love to see it. We also live in about 500 square feet. Um, I think it's a good question. I think there's been a, a strange thing that's happened. I mean, we've been, the thing, you know, it's always peaks and troughs, uh, sort of like recessions or economies. So, you know, our reading has been... Um, been through a period it's been very conservative and and quite middle brow fictional very middle brow it's like sometimes i think it's like modernism has never happened um you know because works like mine are suddenly described as experimental it's absolutely ludicrous so you know really truly this is not experimental this is not Georges Perec. you know i haven't left out like every single e in it um so i i wonder about that i find that slightly re re regressive in some ways um so I Sorry, I'm a little jet-lagged here, um, but I want to pick up a point that you just made there. Sorry, what, what was the point I was trying to make? Oh, that, that so, so, you know, we, we respond to ease. Um, and so, okay, so this is my theory. Now, I have a lot of theories, and I usually revise them about five times a day. In most of my theories, the rest of the world is, like, not with me. They just know what, nobody is with me. Even on Twitter, I was fine. There'd be a big scandal about something. I don't agree with anybody. I can't name the most recent scandal because then I won't get back to Cabra safely. But, um, but I think that what's happened is the rise in memoir. So memoir has risen. And so fiction, in some ways, it's like the fiction has more value if, as an author, I can sit here and say to you, I am a dangerous sex offender and I served five years at the women's prison across the street, right? Suddenly, my novel has more intrinsic value because it's you know there's an evidence attached to it and I think that it's when you talk about narcissism in publishing I think it's more opportunism and I think it's because the marketing department has invaded the editorial space and they're doing what they do and they do it very well but now it's off the back of the author so it's sort of like you are now going to conflate nice biographic snippets that slide in neatly with your fiction and then we'll, we'll sail this boat and you will appear in The Guardian and you will write some confessional essay about, you know, whatever I did or didn't do. I have to quickly make it up because, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't have those inclinations. Um, I made it up. I'm, I make stuff up. And, and I'm personally concerned or cautious about it. But I also respect that um, many writers aren't. And... There are, is certainly uh, writers whose work is, has, is autobiographical fiction, and I don't wish to be disingenuous to that because there's room for all sorts. And I just worry that what's happened is it's breached the levees, and the expectation now is that it's more valuable if you can verify it. My theory is this. Now, remember, they do get revised. So think about what's happening in the broader world. Like, I don't think that there, there is such a distance between art and like whatever geopolitical happening. So look at, look at the refugee crisis. Look at how fixated we are on, are you really from Syria or are you Afghani? Is he really Somali or is he from Eritrea? You know, I, I feel like this verification is seeping in. And the irony is, of course, we're living in a social media age where one can assume any persona and, and ultimately, unless, you know, so maybe a response to that, perhaps. That well, we unless really Ed, Eddie Snowden hacks you and reveals that you, you know, you know, you are not Hillary Fanning. You, you know what I mean? That person tweeting about the weather claiming to be Hillary. You're not her because Eddie Snowden has. But there is a there is a media guessing game with with writers of, of novels, writers of of fiction that clearly advertises fiction and it, and it is. There's a kind of trying to find the author within the pages of the book which you yeah. would have very, a, a lot of difficulty doing with, with, with uh, Martin John. But it's an understandable appetite if we cultivate it, if we create it. It's like yeah, cheese and onion tato. Now you've introduced, you know, haggis flavoured, you know. But people will, understandably, they're curious and they want to. And I, I, I can appreciate that there is a deep curiosity about the creative process. I just think it's more interesting to talk about the novel and allow the novel to live rather than speculate about who wrote it. Because I can certainly testify that you do not, if, you, if you're going to get any work done, and novels take an awful long time, so I really don't recommend to anybody write a novel ever, like, you know, write a gardening book or something useful. Um, 
you, you're going to spend a great deal of time alone, probably banging your head off the floor. You're probably going to sob quite a lot on Skype to a number of friendly women who happen to be sitting in this room tonight. Um, you know, it, it's not... And I always say this at festivals, and all the other, a lot of the other writers look at me and go, uh-uh, uh, I'm really joyful, and I'm out at the pub, and I'm, you know, I'm a Highland dancer, and, you know, I've been to the Olympics, and, and I work out six times a day, and what's wrong with you? But I don't find the process to be like that. And consequently, I write these miserable novels. Well, I mean, speaking of misery... Uh, speaking of misery? <laughs> is there, I mean, am I being naive now? Is there any, is there any hope? Is there any hope for Martin John... I, I couldn't really find oh, any at the end of the book. Question. But, uh. Oh God, I have now. You see, I have to be very careful not to go into my utopic pessimism and my Wittgenstein and Wellies moment. Because um, I'd like to imagine Martin John might at least have one year where he sits down and he watches Eurovision, which is his annual ritual, and he gets to do so undisturbed and, and unplagued by by uh, various uh, <laughs> uh, thwarting <laughs> influences and maybe even indulges in some of his obsessions as he watches Eurovision that maybe he has a great night. Well, you know, this is, this is a great question. Is there any hope for Martin John in this novel? Well, I think one of the fourths to find, isn't it Martin John Will on? I mean, this was really, really difficult because one of the things I really struggled with in this novel was I started to feel like these men have no remorse. That men that make incursions into women's usually disproportionately in flashes target women. I, mean, I don't know if there's some person probably going to arrive in the comment section and say, no, 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 you're wrong. You know, they're flashing men all the time. And maybe, maybe it's equal opportunities now, I don't know. But um, um, he doesn't have any sympathy for his victims, for sure. He, in fact, he's well, very aggressive well, towards them. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because all I can remember is feeling really, really... I was trying to finish the novel. I was very depressed about this. Like, oh, these men, they just don't care. And so I wrote to this doctor, um, Dr. Paul Frederoff, who um, I hope will do a question and answer um, as part of the book club. Um, and I said, you know, I, I, you know, they don't feel any remorse. Uh, and he wrote back and said, no, you're wrong, they do. And he directed me to a, a text called Psychopathia Sexualis. It was published sort of in the late, I think it was the 19th century. And it was a compendium. Now, of course, you know, you can go right to Google this minute and I'm probably wrong, but my recollection of it was some sort of a compendium that either, I think it was Russian, the doctor, and it was, um, sort of like an encyclopedia of every possible perversion he'd come across. And it was so interesting because as the details got of the case studies got um, more and more graphic, it turned into Latin. Um, you know, so blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly it would go to Latin and that would be, you know, this guy was, you know, trying to ride pandas on the bus or whatever. Um, and one of the things that came out from reading that was that these people felt enormous remorse. And the other thing, when I read that, was I realised, well, none of this is new. Exactly the, the same urges are described here, except, of course, you know, if you had epilepsy, you were considered a deviant, you know, or if you, you know. And obviously, we are more, much more tolerant now of homosexuality, but in, in that time, that was, you know, definitely... Um, on the list of, of high dangers. And so it was just very interesting to actually go and read a piece from such a long time ago to get stabilised in the, in, the, in the present day and be able to complete this novel. And, and then towards the end, I felt like it was very easy when you talk about the humour. Um, you know, at times, uh, Martin John, he's, he's a pretty fun guy. When I thought about him obsessing about Eurovision, walking around in circles, you know, his kind of neurotic uh, OCD. Um, he, it, was, it was fun to write. It wasn't ever fun, but it was a bit more fun than, you know, him taking his pants off. Um, but I realised you're running up against a real danger here because this is, man is a deviant and you need, to, you need to go back and you need to go back and you need to keep telling yourself, no, 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 don't make him into a lovable eccentric. This is what this man does. This is what he has the urge to do to women he doesn't even know. He's a violent, he's a violent deviant. And so that was tricky. And so, in fact, the last scenes in the novel, which I think actually are some of the more, most disturbing, there's a, the one where he's watching the young girl eating a hamburger in the station. Yeah. Um, and that came very, very late in the process. Um, and 
uh, yeah, so... I suppose another thing I was wondering was, was there a point during his childhood where, you know, this could have been prevented in, in a sense? He, he could have been... Uh, there could have been an intervention that, that stopped him behaving like this in his adult life. Yeah, I, I think now Martin John would raise alarm bells and people would move in on him and hopefully resources would be put into place. Um, you know... But again, that's, that's the world for the reader. I've given you Martin John as, he, as I made him up, and now the reader comes to the book. And, you know, Blanchot has that great line about writers are only ever the first readers of their work. And that's one of the things, again, I love about fiction, because with my first novel, Malarkey, uh, people come saying, why was that Halim character, why was he so fixated on childbirth? Is he a gynecologist? And, you know, they had often better explanations than I had gone anywhere near. So I mentioned at the start we must talk about the Goldsmiths Prize because you're on uh, this year's shortlist and at the time of recording uh, we don't know the outcome of that prize. I think we can be fairly sure I'm not going to win it but go on yeah. Well, well, we can uh, we can correct you on that We're if you do. Um, but it's 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 kind of a, just for anyone who doesn't know, it's a, it's a it's a relatively new addition to the literary awards calendar, and it, it's it's but it's carved out such a great niche, I think, yes. for itself. And you know, this is you know, according to its website, it it, it seeks to reward um, and recognise novels that um, extend the possibilities of the novel form. I think it's the words they use, and break the mould, essentially. Uh, and some critics say it's doing what a, something like the Booker Prize should be doing. Um, what, would you agree with that? Is, is, is the Goldsmiths Prize sort of... Is, is, it, is it a list that you would have aspired to be on and you think that other novelists should aspire to be on? Well, um, there's a Canadian novelist who I went to China on a book tour thing with Dion Brand, and one of the terms that she used while we were on panels together, and I just loved being on panels with her, um, was she would talk about his or her project. And I thought that was a very generous way to speak about work. So it depends what is your project. You know, many novelists have no interest in form-breaking work, you know, and for that matter, genre novelists. You know, I don't decry. I think some of the most interesting social realism realism you can get is crime novels, so I wish I could write one. Um, Which is to say that I personally, because that's what interests me, I'm interested in what can the novel become, not what have I already known it to be. Not that I object with what I've known it to be, but but that's innovation. Like, I don't, you know... that's just my interest. How how can I deploy language? How can I construct the novel? What can it, you know, where can I go with this? How can the content of my novel be the shape, the form, the language, the syntax, the rhythm? Um, How can I do that? And of course, you know, I get that the rest of the world's probably not with me, um, and that's fine. So it's wonderful to think that we have a prize. I mean, with it issuing the caveat that, of course... You know, literature is a continuum. It's it's what came before, what's going to come, and what's now. It's not a book prize. It's not six books in one year. But but absolutely, these are wonderful authors. They're um they're I feel like my work is definitely in conversation with Emma McBride's work. We both deal a lot with the body. We do deal a lot with questions of shame um, and questions of of women's sexuality. Um, so I feel like me and Emma are, you know. Sharing the same telegraph pole, I hope. Uh, so I'm very, and Deborah Levy and um, Rachel Cusk, who I was on the shortlist for the Giller Prize with. So she's like my Giller sister. Um, and I, I, I love what Rachel does. And that's a prime example because Rachel writes uh, first person, she writes fiction that has had sometimes autobiographical uh, basis. But that's the point. It's indisputable. She is such a brilliant stylist and she's so inventive. And so that's where I, you know, it's like my project is these are my interests. So I'm not going to knock somebody else's. Um, So, yeah, I think I'm personally thrilled and very, very surprised to be on this list. Um, And and I think, yeah, I think that uh, we've been through a very middle brow time in, in fiction publishing. And it's partly because the economics of the publishing industry are, you know, in the toilet. It seems to be getting a bit better. And w- once you have an economic crunch, you, your courage goes out the window, right? Like in any 
in any. And then the irony is that that's when you need to be brave because readers are hungry. We underestimate readers. We underestimate what can readers handle. It's like, oh, it's too much, oh, it's too much. I'm telling you. Was that where challenging gets used? But I think once the same thing is well done, it ceases to be challenging. Challenging is only when something is not, yeah, and I not don't, well written. I, I don't think those should be the aesthetic terms of engagement. I think that's another problem, that the terms of engagement have shifted so far to the middle of the road that we don't even deploy literary terms to to even, and sometimes in criticism, they're just often, some of, sometimes, in some less reputable papers, um, you know, they're just plot summaries. And the word count has become like 200 words. Um, those are not the terms of engagement with literary fiction. Sometimes you will not even see a single word or line about the language in the book. I find it just astonishing. The means of production is language. The means by which literature exists is language. It's not... It's not pictures. Like, we still use words, uh, and yet a, a review will not make any reference to the prose. I find that just astonishing, but that's okay. I like being astonishing. <laughs> I would not want to have nothing to astonish me. Um, what are you writing at the moment, or are you writing at the moment, and if so, can you tell us anything about it? I'm writing an awful lot of emails that say, no, I can't do that. No, I'm tired and jet-lagged and I can't find a train station. Uh, no, I'm writing, so I'm writing, it's a quartet, so it'd be Malarkey, Martin John. So the next novel, number three, <laughs> sorry, so now I'm getting a bit tennis. Number three is um, the number three seed, isn't that what they say in tennis? It is, yeah. yeah okay, sorry. To get my tennis in there is Bina. So there's a woman in Malarkey called Bina. It's a very devilish kind of fantastic. She's had enough in this next novel. So that novel is, num is number three in the quartet, if you like. I'm trying to create like a bar of music with these books and then it's finished. So we've had the first two notes. So the idea, I don't know if I should say this publicly, but I want to try to create two works simultaneously and I have this bonkers plan to try to publish them simultaneously but I have a very strong feeling it's not going to work I'll be honest with you so you know I'm announcing the failure before <laughs> I've even started because I'm a utopic well, pessimist. You're announcing your ambition I think that well would be. <laughs> that's always a disaster you should never ever do that it's like that moment when you think you may have finally once written one short piece that's good and then you get it back from the editor saying we're not going to publish this you know what I mean? And oh, you're not well. getting paid your 45 quid or whatever. Oh, you well. spent 45 years writing this 500-word piece. Um, and then the final novel. So number three is going to be Bina, a novel in warnings. And then number four is going to be a novel that brings us to Vancouver. Which is where you live. Which yeah. is where I presently live. Um, and that novel is a personal business plan. And it's called The Intellectual Brothel. It's going to solve... All dating dilemmas, and all and it's a business. I mean, future finances, future. Fi yeah, pension. I mean, it's not you know this literary fiction thing, malarkey. This literary fiction malarkey. It's not a big arena. So no, I, th I the third final novel is called The Intellectual Brothel, and I will just leave that with listeners, and they can just make up what they think might be in it. Okay. But all I'm going to say is algorithm. It's not going to be that kind of algorithm. It's not going to be random. It's very specific. Yeah, so the, so the four novels, in, in essence, I mean, Balzac did this a bit, right? Obviously, he did this a lot and considerably much better than I'm ever going to be able to do it. But, you know, this notion of people reappearing. and So we nearly have to wrap up now, but I just wanted to ask you one thing about... And then I want you to know that I'm going to bed. Okay. At the, at the end of that fourth novel, that's it. No more. Yeah, I'm going to get a nice sleeping bag at Sure, that's stores. just the interval, and then you can... No, well, I'm middle-aged now. I'm a late, very, very late bloomer, and I'm in decline. So, basically, <laughs> well, I, mean, I was going to ask books, you, you... Seriously, four books. If you think about the number of, the number of bird flu alerts I've tweeted... <laughs> well, you I sent mean, me your essay earlier, The Difficult Question, and you talk about... I don't know if you're being an unreliable narrator, or, but you're talking about suffering from, I don't know how to pronounce this, thanatophobia. Yeah. <laughs> Which I should know is the fear, I should have known is the fear of death, tenatophobia. Well, I didn't actually good know quiz it. Question. I didn't know that either. But you say you suffer from that. So bird yes. flu, bird flu is one of the, is, is no. that part of that fear of bird flu? No, bird flu's got nothing to do with thanatophobia. Bird flu is just a hobby. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I follow bird flu the way some people follow tennis or... Because I thought bird... I do follow tennis, actually. Yeah, it's funny. I follow tennis obsessively. Does that mean you follow bird flu Well, yeah, basically. You know the way you get excited about... Okay, she struggles to try to think of a tennis player. Oh, Rafael, Rafael Nadir. Is that a tennis player? Rafa Nadal. <laughs> Sorry. That Rafael Nadir, who's still, still <laughs> close, in, in his back garden, just playing shuttlecock right now. <laughs> He's coming. He's coming to change the world. Um, well, I follow Twitter cricket, which means you don't actually watch any cricket. You just let somebody else watch the cricket and then you read their tweets. So that's very time con- times conserving. No, I'm really, really interested. I have a number of obsessive topics. And today, it was I got kind of fixated on, I don't know if I should say this on the Irish Times podcast. Because <laughs> then they're going to say, oh, she is Martin John. But I found this medical study that was tweeted by this guy, Neuroskeptic, and it was, do rats have orgasms? It was really interesting. And I, I hate rats. I just hate, hate, hate rats. And that really depressed me. Because they seem to... That's why, you know, we can't get rid of them. But that wasn't your question. Your question was... Well, I'm just uh, wondering about the bird flu and the fear oh, of death. <laughs> no, I find bird flu... I think it's because, you know, I lead such a, you know, fairly dull life that I, you know, and I've no science. So it's just all the numbers and the geography of where it pops up. And then my other interest is the weather. I'm kind of fixated on the weather. And it's not just bird flu. Like, I follow a number of different... Like, public health has become fascinating for me. And there was something very tragic about confessing this interest. Um, but no, that's nothing to do with thanatophobia. But my essay, which is in this collection called Alchemy, which Notting Hill Editions, who only publish essays, have just published in the UK, it's about, well, it's about the devaluation, devaluing of the imagination, and it's about process. And I realised that my entire writing process is rooted in thanatophobia, which is the intense fear of dying. So that every time I'm... I write a, a novel or a book review. Uh, I get to this stage where I get very, very buried and very, very lost, and I, it's like I bury myself under the ground, and I feel like I'm, yeah, I, f- yeah, I feel like I'm dying, like I'm dying, and then that—that's the process. Is is it a fear of dying without having completed a book? Well, a friend of mine who's a visual artist, Marina Roy, said, "A.K. They're your tombstones, these books," and I said, "God, I never thought of it like that, but." No, it's just a very horrible experience. It's very claustrophobic. It's very, it's horrible. And then what happens is I lose, kind of like, you know, getting buried. You know, you might not settle in exactly the spot you want. I don't know. I've never, I've never been buried, but, but you know, I'm imaginative. Well, it's the same thing. You, you, what happens is the novel, I lose chunks of these books. I don't know where they go. I, like, lose them. Then they're published, and there's, like, I look at them, I think, where's that part? So I get very, very, very lost, uh, as in I can't find anything, uh, everything. I, it's the only way I can describe it is it's akin to thanatophobia. I don't know why I'm telling the nation about this. Well, we really have to leave it there because I have no more difficult questions or easy ones or any questions at all. But, but I just want to thank everybody uh, in the live audience for coming to this uh, podcast event here at the Irish Writers' Centre. Uh, thank everybody at the centre. Thank our sound engineer, JJ Vernon. But a very special thanks to Anna Kena Schofield. No, thank you. Thank you.